We're sponsored by Provider Solutions and Development, experts in holistic career coaching with exclusive access to hundreds of positions nationwide. Start the conversation or reach out to one of their career navigators today at info.psdconnect.org forward slash curbsiders. That's info.psdconnect.org forward slash curbsiders. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. It's another episode of the Dermsiders. We've done it again. Yeah, real, real foot-heavy episode tonight, folks. <laughs> yeah, uh, w- Paul, thank you for reminding me. Audience, uh, I should warn you that towards the end of the episode, we talk about some toenail fungus, and if that's a trigger for you, then I'm sorry. Uh, so please just mash on that 30-second skip button, and uh, you should should be by it in no time. But it was a great discussion. We had back. Our favorite self-proclaimed skin turnist, Dr. Helena Pacheca, who is our chief of dermatology. And uh, we talked about a bunch of skin complaints. We went down some trunk lesions all the way down. We're not supposed to say lesions, Paul, but I said it anyway. Uh, (laughs) We talked about some skin conditions affecting the trunk all the way down to the toenails and uh, even talked about venous insufficiency. A reminder to the audience that this and most of our episodes are available for CME credit through VCU Health Continuing Education. You can go to curbsiders.vcuhealth.org to claim free credit there. And Paul, before you tell them all about our guest, can you please remind them, what generally do we do on this show? Thanks for asking that. Generally, we are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. As you mentioned, we talked to the amazing Dr. Helena Pacheco, who I think we determined is back for a third time. Third time. Um, who stood us on skin in the past, and we, we continue our journey uh, in terms of all the ways that skin can go wrong, and then also throwing some toenails for funsies. So as a reminder, Dr. Pacheco is an internist, a hospitalist, and a dermatologist who is well-known to the show from our prior episode. She geeks out over complex medical dermatology, the promotion of dermatology within the House of Medicine, inpatient dermatology consults, the creation of creative multidisciplinary teams to solve problems, and the delivery of excellent dermatologic care to remote populations both domestically and abroad. So she does a lot more than I do. That's basically <laughs> what I'm taking away from this bio. Dr. Pacheca is a master clinician and a translational scientist. She is aiming to better understand and eventually prevent Steven Johnson syndrome and toxic epidermal necrolysis, uh, as well as other severe cutaneous reactions. And Paul, I should remind the audience that with us on this episode, we have two fantastic med student producers, Edison Jang and Maddie Mad Dog Morgan. And uh, Paul, I cut you off. Any any puns for this one or any anything else you want to say before we get on with the episode? Oh, no, no. Thank you for that reminder. And certainly not. <laughs> All right. I feel like we're leaving it on the table here, but uh, maybe maybe the audience fill in, fill in your own favorite puns here. Okay. Helena, you're back. What is this, the third time or the fourth time? I, I'm kind of losing track. I think it's the third time. Before we get on to the cases, did you have a pick of the week for the audience? I think Paul has one, uh, but we want to hear yours first. So this is a little bit self-serving, but um, I am tr- I am a, a social media novice for sure. Although I think I, we did a tutorial 
um, at the end of the last curbsiders together, which was really fun. Um, one of your staff walked me through that. And what I would like to take off is the hashtag Derm is medicine. I'm really, I, I just think that that would be amazing. Um, again, it's to the end of dermatology within the house of medicine, really leaning in and participating. So that is my self-fulfilling pick of the week. But the one thing I guess I can mention is that I am reading a book called Measure What Matters. And I, it's really interesting. It's about creating goals that are measurable and achievable and looping back to see if you achieve those goals and how that can create a very productive culture. The book is a little bit about corporate culture, but I'm trying to use it uh, for myself in my translational work and also within our residency programs. Awesome. Paul, what's your pick of the week before we get on to the te- the cases? <laughs> well, now now I feel like mine is absolutely classless, but I'm going to recommend actually an upcoming album from the the stoner rock band Red Fang um, out of Portland, Oregon. So they consistently make great, excellent, melodic um, sort of metal stuff that I think this, again, this is for like the 1% of people who listen to the show who might actually appreciate this, <laughs> but they're... They're releasing an album called Arrows, which is being released in early June. And all the singles that have been released so far on on iTunes have been just spectacular. So the album itself, I think, is going to be terrific. For a treat, go back and watch their video for the song Wires, which I shouldn't spend so much time on this, but I'm going to. Where the whole premise <laughs> is they get their, their initial check to make a music video and they just buy stuff and then drive a car through it. It's just three minutes of them sort of crashing through milk and stuff. It's, it's a delight. So, But in any case, my recommendation will be the album uh, Arrows by Red Fang out of Portland, Oregon. Okay. This episode of The Curbsiders is sponsored in part by Kalo, Q-A-L-O, rings. Uh, And Matt, Kalo are the makers of the original silicone ring. They have mastered comfort, functionality, and style. We don't like to talk about it, but I think sometimes doctors have to do things that are probably best left undescribed where we have to take our wedding bands on or off or or any sort of jewelry that we're wearing. It's just it's not conducive to some of the things that we have to do in the clinic. Oftentimes, we're putting gloves on, taking gloves off, we're washing our hands, we're sanitizing, and you, you kind of want something that'll stand up to that and not have to worry about losing it or causing damage. I know also, we, we've talked about this in prior ads, you also have a fear of <laughs> of an avulsion injury, which apparently Kalo is good for. So you're a big fan <laughs> of this product, Matt. Tell me, <laughs> t- tell me about your experience with them. Paul, you're right. I have been afraid of wedding band avulsion for quite a long time now, which is why I have been wearing silicone rings for several years. And I love the Kalo rings that they sent me. They sent me a whole pack of them. So I now can like wear different rings every day of the week if I want to, Paul. And my wife also has some of these wedding bands and she's really been liking wearing them. She's been getting a lot of compliments on her band in the summertime at the pool, at the beach. You don't want to get sand and sunscreen on these things. So she likes to wear the silicon bands uh, certain times a year or when she's outdoors and being active, which is really the whole point of the brand Kalo. That's that's how they conceived it, is that they wanted these silicone rings to be worn for active lifestyles. And that's why a lot of people like military personnel, policemen, firefighters, you know, people working or playing outdoors a lot like to wear these rings. So if all that sounds appealing to you, and it should, you should go to kalo.com slash curb to get 20% off your purchase today. That's qalo.com slash curb, and the 20% off discount will automatically be applied at checkout. That's kalo.com slash curb. Well, let's take it to Cashlack Memorial, and Eddie, will you read our first case? And for the audience tonight, as, as we probably said in the intro, we are going to be covering kind of from the neck down to the toes hopefully we'll see how we'll see how it goes it's it's always ambitious with us in these scripts away we go 
Okay, so for case number one, we have Fergie Sturgeson, who is a white female presenting with skin changes on her upper back that she has noticed more as she's been spending time out in the sun on her yacht. She's asymptomatic except for maybe some occasional itching. Her skin is tan except for some variably sized hypopigmented macules with fine scale on her upper chest, upper back, shoulders, and arms. She has no other skin lesions. So what would you do for these mysterious skin changes? She has a yacht, Eddie. Seriously? <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> Just super relatable case. I think we can all. <laughs> she listens to yacht rock. Um, yeah. She's escaping the cicadas, maybe. Who knows? Um, okay. So this is interesting. This is a Caucasian female. And she is a yacht enjoying lady. So potentially she's getting some sun exposure, right? And she's starting to notice this more often as she's spending more time out in the sun. So that is a clue. Asymptomatic, you mentioned, which is really important. And she's a little bit tan, which dermatology does not endorse, but people <laughs> live their lives. Um, and I'd rather them come as they are than not come at all. And what I heard you say is that they are of various sizes, but they are macules. So just to not to oversimplify, I know we've done this in other episodes, but, you know, dermatology language is really important. And I always encourage people to practice speaking the language. So macules, if you remember the trick is that if you close your eyes and you rub your finger over the surface, you can't tell if you're on or off the lesion. So it has absolutely no Z axis, if you will right? It's completely flat, flush with the surface of the skin. So these are hypopigmented macules, hypopigmented meaning lighter than her surrounding skin tone. That does not mean without pigment, right? Hypo is just mm -hmm. relative. And the location is on her upper chest, upper back, shoulders, and arms. So what I would think of out of the gates for her is something called tinea or pityriasis versicolor. Okay. Um, does anyone know what this is or have you heard of this before? Sure, of course. Yeah, this is some sort of a skin infection. <laughs> it's a skin. <laughs> because it's, a, it's hypopigmented macules. Yeah, but sometimes it's actually, so hypopigmented is sort of the classic photo or, that you'll find, but sometimes they're almost like salmon colored, right? Um, and I'll, And hopefully we'll be able to pull some pictures and show you these in different skin tones and types because that's always very, very important. Um, but hypopigmented macule, and does anyone know a great trick? If you're like, I think this is what this is, but is this early, early vitiligo? Is this some sort of other hypopigmented skin disorder? Does anyone have a trick? Would you like me to teach you a trick? Yes, yes please. Very okay. much. <laughs> I have so no tricks. So this I is have fun. an up-to-date search. So technically, there should be very fine surface scale to these. Scale is, you know, little surface change that's dry and we tend to think of them as flakes dermatology calls them scale but this scale is so 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 subtle sometimes if you train your eye and you really zone in on the border of the lesion you'll be able to see that it's very sort of fluffy looking but oftentimes it doesn't look that way and oftentimes just because they're coming to the doctor for a skin problem that's the day they put on their lotion <laughs> right and so everything's sort of slicked down so what you can do, and I will link to a video of this, is you can take the skin between your fingers, you can push down and give the skin a stretch, kind mm -hmm. of in all directions, okay? So kind of on the, you know, all different ways. And what that will do is it will fluff up and actually puff up this 
very specific kind of scale and make it more apparent. It's one of my favorite words in dermatology. This scale <laughs> is called furfuricious scale, which is just so fun to say. And that's a real word. And that's a real word. It's furfuricious <laughs> scale, um, not fergilicious scale, like, like Fergie on her yacht here. Furfuricious scale. And it'll be this little fine puff of scale that sort of blankets the entire hypopigmented macule. And once you have this trick in your toolbox, you're not going to get foiled again. It is such a fun magic trick to teach the medical students and the residents. It's going to make you really confident in your diagnosis um, and your patient will be blown away. So this is almost like pretending that you're like pinching and to zoom in on a, on a, a, and swiping your fingers across on like your phone screen to like, look at certain like areas of if you're on the maps and you're like which which side yeah. of the block is it exactly. on like I know the street so now I'm pulling I'm pushing okay. my fingers down and pulling them apart that's exactly it but it's applying traction it's not it's not squishing you're actually pulling apart no you're pulling traction. apart yeah okay so you put one finger on either side of the macule and you pull apart and then you put one finger on either side of the macula at a different angle and you pull apart. Oh, okay. So you're using both both really, hands. I use both fingers. Both index fingers. Got yeah, it. Yeah. Both index fingers is kind of the thing you I do I can't there. wait to try this, Paul. It's I, so <laughs> magical. You're going to I saw a it. patient like two, two, three weeks ago who had what I thought must have been tinea versicolor and he had brown skin and it actually looked like it was hyperpigmented to me. But it was on a chest and back, mm -hmm. and I did not know this test at the time, so I did not try it, and it was asymptomatic, and he said it had been there for a while. I was not seeing him for that condition. He was he was not worried about that at the time. <laughs> he had bigger problems. Yeah, and they tend to be very uniform in their size and also in their shape, mm -hmm. right? So dermatologists at the end of the day are like morphologists, basically. So these tend to be about a centimeter or smaller. They tend to be very circular or ovoid. They tend to be sort of clustered together in sort of the oily areas of the body because that's what they like to snack on. This uh -huh. It's caused by a yeast in the environment and a reaction of the host, the patient, to that yeast in the environment. And so the yeast really thrives on sebaceous material. So really it's going to be those oily chests, backs, shoulders. It can even extend up onto the neck a little bit. Um, tends to spare the face, which is notable. Um, and um, yeah, that trick is wonderful. Give that a try. Um, and Helena, I was mentioning that this patient had brown skin and I thought that the lesions, and maybe I was mistaking just the, he had a lot of them. So I'm not sure if I was like mistaking what was his normal skin for what were the lesions because of the way that the pattern was. And I was like kind of peeking beneath a gown looking, mm -hmm. but can it be hyperpigmented in some pa like, or was I just totally off on that? No, it can look a little pink. It can look a little salmon-like and okay. some folks it can look a little browner. Um, really cool thing about this yeast is that the easy thing to tell your patients is why is it paler than the rest of your skin as you're getting tan in those patients that present that way? It actually kind of makes its own sunscreen, which is really cool which is why people don't so much tend to notice this in the winter because uh -huh. they don't have sun exposure. But as they get more sun exposure, as they're outdoors, as their melanocytes pump out melanin, it actually creates an enzyme that inhibits pigment in the skin. Oh, wow. So it's not technically a sunscreen. I guess I really shouldn't call it that, but that's yeah. the quick and easy way to kind of explain it to patients. 
the reason this is pale like this is because the yeast is actually making its own little sunscreen. And that's just sort of fun. The patient's like, oh my gosh, that's so crazy. Like, I didn't know it could do that. It's conversational. It's fun. And then you can kind of bridge into how to treat it. I think if I were a patient and someone told me that the rash that I had was a result of a yeast that makes its own sunscreen interacting with my skin, I think my follow-up question would be, how can I keep this from ever happening again? I think I would be more freaked out than anything else. So I guess along those lines, is there anything that predisposes uh, poor Miss Sturgisson more so to this than somebody else? Or how can, is there, you know, can we talk about, is there it's, any it's kind of prevention genetics, stuff? the way, um, there's, this is a really interesting thing about the microbiome and, you know, the environment and epigenetics. And I mean, this, there's basic science for this, but the, the sort of thing you can talk about in clinic is that, you know, this yeast is everywhere on earth. Um, it's ubiquitous. You can't escape it. There's something in your genetic makeup that makes your skin respond to this in this way. It is chronic and will need to be managed. I usually joke with my patients that if they would like to be the first to go to Mars, this may not be a problem for them anymore, because as far <laughs> as we know, this is an Earth thing. But it sort of highlights that they will continue to need to, to do something to keep it at bay. It is of absolutely no consequence to their health. So for some of your older patients or your very frail patients or, you know, patients at end of life or hospice or, you know, do you have to do anything about this? And there are plenty of patients who just want to know that it's not dangerous. It's not a cutaneous lymphoma. They've been on the internet looking at some other hypopigmented stuff. It's not vitiligo. And they're like, okay, great, I'll keep it. You know, so so it's it's nice to be able to tell people that while things can be done, nothing really needs to be done for this. It's it's not dangerous in any way. My thinking about this is like, let's say you have someone like Fergie. She wants to look hot on her yacht. Yes, she does. And is it necessary? Like, can I just empirically treat her? Because the treatments don't seem all that toxic, especially if I'm just using topical therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, or do you do you recommend people do like skin scrapings and try to do the KOH? Like we in primary care, like most people aren't set up to do a KOH prep anymore. I'm going to be honest with you now that when I learned the stretch test or the fluff test or whatever you want to call it, um, I don't KOH as much unless I'm teaching trainees how to read and look for the ZD and meatballs, if you will. It's good to train your eye and practice doing those things. But in a fast paced clinic, when you know what it is, why make the patient sit around, right? Yeah. Um, If it, if you, if you find the furfuricious scale and it's in all the right areas, you know what it is. So things that can kick this off, let's say Fergie's never had this before. She's like, what on earth? This has never happened to me. Why now? Right? So tropical climates, heat, humidity um, can do it. Sometimes people will actually flare paradoxically with this in the winter if they're wearing a lot of really woolly, very warm sweaters, right? Because it's like almost tropical and humid inside of there for them. Um, and let's just say she used steroids or got steroids for some reason. Steroids are like a little bit of fertilizer for this. Okay. So sometimes that's a setup. If patients are like, why me? Why now? What's happening? And um, we're talking systemic steroids. Like if someone got like a prednisone or something. Well, for like, even say, topical sometimes okay. can, can set you up for it. Um, and the treatment, of course, you can treat it topically. It's a very superficial, technically, I guess we'd call it an infection, but it's not you know dangerous uh-huh. in any way. It's extraordinarily superficial. It's just in the top of the stratum corneum. So one of the best tricks ever is to use ketoconazole shampoo. Um, and of course, this is just sort of an expert trick. This is not like FDA approved for this. But um, ketoconazole shampoo can be used as a body wash to those mm-hmm. areas of the body. Leave it on, lather, do the rest of your shower, rinse it off last um, for several days in a row. And that can often take care of it. All of the, you know, azole creams, pick your azole. Those okay. work pretty well. 
selenium sulfide can also be used. And then for maintenance, right? So let's say Fergie gets it to go away, but doesn't want it to come back. You know, she doesn't have to keep using ketoconazole shampoo as a body wash every day. It can be a little bit drying. It's not very cosmetically elegant, doesn't smell that great. So um, she can use it, say, two or three times a week, you know, to kind of keep things at bay. The pigmentary change takes a little longer to, to normalize because it just, that's hypopigmentation takes time to mm. repigment. So that can persist a little longer. But yeah, it's super easy to treat. It will come okay. back. Tell people it will come back. Nothing is going wrong if it comes back. It's behaving like it should. As we'll talk about, hopefully we'll get to toenails. I, I feel like these fungal infections tend to come back once people start getting fungal infections anywhere. Uh, intertrigo, uh, onychomycosis, they, it, it seems like they're nagging problems. They are. And before we jump to toenails, just in terms of the, you mentioned the selenium sulfide shampoo as a body wash. Is the over-the-counter stuff a sufficient potency to treat this, or does this need to be a prescription strength uh, I usually product? give the ketoconazole prescription strength. Um, it's usually covered by insurance. Um, I can't speak for every insurer, of course. Sure. Um, it's not a very expensive medication. Um, but so the I selenium, is that that's what's in some of those like dandruff shampoos? Mm -hmm. Is that, right. is that yep. what you meant, Paul? Like yeah, can you, yeah, the exactly. dandruff shampoos, would those work for this? Are those strong enough? Those would work. Okay. Um, I usually give a prescription because they're stronger. Um, the things that are available over the counter are basically uh, weaker versions of what's prescription. Um, okay. So, but yes, if that's what the patient can get, then that will do the job too. So we give Fergie the ketoconazole shampoo. She loves us. We also tested. She did have the furfuricious, uh, you know, scale or how do we say it? For, is it, it it's furfuricious? The we did the test and she did, did the stretch it. test or the, the stretch test, test, whatever you want to call it. Okay, all right. And and then and you had a puff of furfuricious scale. There we go. So you didn't have to koh and look for the the ZD and meatballs. Oh, I can't wait to try this out. Yeah. All right. It's really Matt, fun. Yeah. So we're going to kind of rapidly go through some other common skin ailments uh, that might pop up on the trunk or the extremities. Maddie, would you read us? Uh, Fergie has some other stuff going on, right? Can I just pause you for a second? We can sure. slice this in or leave it out. Um, I wanted to talk about this old-fashioned practice that we used to do that worked beautifully. So we used to have patients take ketoconazole tablet. Oh. And then we would have them wait an hour or two and then vigorously exercise. Oh, I, oh, I read about amazing. that. You guys remember, I read about, you that. about this? No, I, well, this I was reading um, John Hopkins anti or yeah, John Hopkins like has an antibiotic guy and they talk about, they were talking about that in there. Yes. I, I actually meant to ask you about that because yes. I was like, that is so cool. Yes. And so you, you vigorously exercise. Like you're a weekend warrior, you go out, you get super sweaty, and then you purposefully do not rinse that sweat off of your skin. <laughs> that you seems sleep kind of in dangerous. Sweat. Spectacular. But but the ketoconazole is beautifully excreted through the eccrine glands and uh. so sits on the surface of the skin and then like almost as if you had applied it topically. <laughs> this would knock this out. Patients loved this trick. But ketoconazole, as you know has a new warning. Yeah, probably if that label, person's on warfarin, you might not want to. Well, it got a little warning in its label. And so that definitely went out of style. Um, <laughs> I remember specifically doing this as a resident writing for this. It worked really well. Oh, um, that's I, so I, cool. That's I am great. no longer doing this, which is a bummer. Uh, um, but it's probably sprints. safer. Yeah. Yeah. So I just so wanted when, to mention that in case there's anyone listening who's like, oh yeah, I love doing uh, that. Like just think think about the side effects. And um, for something that's not life-threatening or dangerous, um, 
you know, Kita Kana's all systemically oh, well, has its place, you. but um, but maybe that maybe this is not that place anymore. Thank you for telling us about that. That is super cool. So Matt, I'm not sure if if I talk about this much on the show, but I actually really like to cook, which is why I'm thrilled to talk about one of our sponsors, which is Green Chef. Green Chef is fantastic because as much as I like to cook, I am also perpetually exhausted and I tend to work long days. So it's nice to come home and have a meal that is somewhat planned out for me that has the ingredients pre-portioned out that has these easy to follow recipes that still make these fantastic meals. So it's a way for me to indulge a hobby I like without doing the parts that I don't like, like chopping things up (laughs) or making a lot of dishes dirty or uh, having to go actually shopping for individual ingredients. So all the stuff that I hate is kind of gone and all the stuff that I like is sort of left. So it's it's a great opportunity. They give you variety too, which I also like. So for me, I like the plant powered diets. We've talked about my garbage diet before. So this is a way for me to eat a little bit healthier. Um, but Matt, I, I think your your family has expanded and, and and looked at some of the other options as well. Isn't that right? Yeah, Paul, and not to launch into an intervention, but the audience and I, we're worried about you, Paul. We want yep. you to eat more green, Chef. We don't we don't want you to have this garbage diet that you keep bragging about to everybody. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Just so, bragging, yeah. So as we've talked about, Green Chef, you can you can order all different types of meals recently because not everyone in my family's vegetarian. We ordered the balanced meals. We got Peruvian chicken with ahi verde, Greek pork couscous bowls, and Korean beef noodle stir fry. My oldest son eats like four servings of each of these, uh, just just demolished it. And not only that, Paul, he's going on 10 years old and he loves to help cook in the kitchen. And it's actually a nice bonding thing to be able to make these meals with your kids or your loved ones. So I would really highly recommend it. Also, Paul, this meal kit is sustainable. They offset 100% of their direct carbon emissions and plastic packaging in every box. So you could feel great about what you're eating and how it gets to your table. Paul, how can they get Green Chef? Glad you asked, Matt. They can go to greenchef.com slash curb100 and use code curb100 to get $100 off, including free shipping. Again, that is greenchef.com slash curb100 and use code curb100 to get $100 off, including free shipping. That is Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. Okay, Maddie, now Fergie, I believe Fergie does have some other skin ailments. Yes, Fergie comes back and this time she has a few bumps, lesions in her axilla and neck that she would like looked at. She noticed that her necklace and her bra are starting to catch on them and she thinks it's very uncomfortable. What would you do? So these are lesions. So we're going to try to replace the word lesion with you know, Derm kind of cringes when they hear lesion. Um, like maculopapular. Yeah, like they're not, these, these are not maculopapular lesions. Maculopapular lesions, yes. <laughs> and I'm like, say say what? Um, they are papules, would we say? Papules meaning, what does papules mean, right? So exactly the opposite of what we talked about last. If you close your eyes, and of course you have to tell your patient what you're doing because you look really weird. And sometimes I will actually do this. So I'm like, is this slightly raised? I close my eyes and I'm like rubbing their arm and they're like what is she doing? Um, <laughs> this doctor's weird. You know, papules are are raised from the skin surface. And the trick you can do to talk yourself into something being a papule, if it's subtle, is that you can tell if you're on or off the lesion with your eyes closed. Okay. These, I suspect, are probably pedunculated papules or um, sessile. Yes. They have a stalk to them, if you will. And they seem to be located in these areas around the neck or in areas of friction 
intertriginous areas. Intertriginous, remember, means where skin touches skin. And sometimes they're a little bit hyperpigmented or sometimes they're just sort of their normal background skin tone. Some people prickle at the term flesh toned, but I don't mind it. Flesh tone mm-hmm. just means whatever color your, your background is, that's the color that the, mm-hmm. the spot is. And they're catching on things and they're uncomfortable. So the differential here could be several things. But given what you told me, my suspicion would be for acrocordons, which are the fancy dermatologic term for skin tags. And, uh, and they can really be kind of pesky. So she should tie a piece of fishing line around this and just pull, right? Totally. She should also, she should also get the, you know, over the counter liquid nitrogen spray that isn't cold enough to do much, but can make a wound. (laughs) That stuff works. Um, We're obviously joking. So a couple things you can do. They do get inflamed. They get uh, thrombosed. They get torsed. They get pulled. They get excoriated. There's definitely lots of good reasons to take these off. Yeah. And when they are symptomatic or when they are inflamed, insurance does generally tend to cover that. Mm-hmm. You have to document that. So remember to tell the truth. You know, a lot of patients want these gone because they don't like how they look. That's a different thing. Insurance does, you know, generally does not cover that. And in fact, that's actually a completely different um, code. Mm -hmm. Um, so for billing and coding, but for those that are inflamed or irritated or symptomatic, if you document that, and oftentimes you can see that there's inflammation, erythema at the base, you can document that it's eroded or thrombosed. That's helpful. You can remove them. Every dermatologist who practices long enough and usually long enough is by towards the end of your residency. So not too terribly long Mm -hmm. has a story about a skin tag that wasn't a skin tag. Okay. So, you know, I do tend to send things to PATH, um, to histopathology, especially if they're, you know, all that scary history. And we will talk about this in a skin cancer episode for sure, but things that are growing rapidly, things that are symptomatic, those two things on exam already, my spidey senses are going off that, that mm-hmm. you know, something may not be as it seems. So we do remove them, and I tend to send them to the histopathology lab just to make sure that they're acrocordons. A couple different ways you can take them off. And um, for me, um, and probably for many derms, but there's no you know one right way, it has a lot to do with the diameter of the stalk. Mm-hmm. So for those that have a very thin stalk of about four millimeters or less, um, in theory, those can be treated with liquid nitrogen, and you can actually blast those with liquid nitrogen and they will desiccate um, and fall off. In deeper skin tones, skin of color sort of considerations here, um, you have to remember that um, liquid nitrogen can actually obliterate your melanocytes. And so you always have to counsel that I have the potential in doing it this way, that I might leave you with a pale spot. It usually will repigment, but certainly sometimes it has not repigmented. So you kind of have to suss out what your patient's desires are in that area. Um, otherwise, you can just, you know, numb them up with a teeny little tiny bit of anesthetic. We use lidocaine, make a little bleb at the base and just snip them off with either your iris scissors or your straight blade. Um, uh, and that works well, too. Okay. Does the number impact that? I feel like a lot of the times I have patients with just a lot of skin mm-hmm. tags, especially around the neck and necklaces and collars are catching. And they just sort of want to, usually they sort of gesture vaguely and say, I'd like all of this taken off. Like, yeah. Is that... 
something yeah. that you do or do you just sort of target one or two that might be especially bothersome sh- or what's your approach? Well, so it depends on whether or not they are symptomatic. And so the insurance generally will sort of question if you're taking off like, you know, hundreds of these. <laughs> right, sure. Like they're not all. So I, I asked them, I said, you know, which ones of these are really bothering you the most? You know, and oftentimes there is like a dominant one that, or, you know, what's, you know, what's been funny with the pandemic is women will come in once the clinics opened up and they notice their necklace gets caught on one of them, Yes, you know, yep. and it is kind of like unsightly and embarrassing. It doesn't look very nice and it, it gets rubbed. Um, so they like, if you ask people, they'll tell you, they're like, I absolutely hate this thing. I, or gentlemen are shaving over it. Sometimes they're catching it. Right. Oh, sure. Um, so they'll, they'll point out the ones that are, that are bothersome for you. And then if you look closely, right, because of course things that are traumatized are going to have skin changes, you'll see, you'll see evidence that they've been, um, nicked or scarred or, you know, that they're inflamed when they come in. I try really hard not to take off like 50 skin tags, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and some people have almost like shag carpet of acroplorons, yes, yeah. you know, and, and, and those can be really wildly symptomatic. Those patients are, um, really, really uncomfortable. Um, send those to dermatology. We have lots of things we can do for that. Um, right. serial, some, serial so- shave planing and stuff, but that's like a whole other. If somebody has like a, a farm of them, I I've seen some patients like, you know, armpits, neck, and it's it's catching on garments and things like, and it, it is, they they don't like it for multiple reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Yep. And and for me, anything with a stalk bigger than four millimeters, like I said, I usually send all tissue to path. Uh-huh. Um, but um, anything with a stalk broader than that, I mean, everyone you make it. your own decision, but just know that you know, uh, melanoma people have gotten melanoma back. <laughs> okay. Um, Merkel can look like anything. Like it's yeah. That's scary. I would not have th- made that association. <laughs> like, yeah. But most of the time, the ones that I'm seeing in primary care, if I were thinking of doing anything myself, are very small. And like, um, you know, there's others that look the same way, and I'm pretty mm-hmm. confident what I'm seeing. But yep, and they tend to be very symmetric bilateral, okay. right? If you think about it that way. So we wanted to go through a couple more. So so Fergie, we we actually she's got some some of these are smaller, and uh, we just hit her up with some liquid nitrogen, and she's good to go. And uh, we've now cured her her tinea and her and her skin tags. But happy lady. Let's say she also has just like a red raised spot on her. I guess like maybe on the side of her, like one of her flanks. And, uh, it's, it's close to the bathing suit line. She, she also wants that removed. We think it's a cherry ham angioma. We have some primary care skills. I, I think a lot, most primary cares can, can identify cherry ham angiomas and people tend to have multiple when they have them. Are those, can those also be treated with cryo? Is it, is it worth treating those? You can, you certainly can try. So those, <laughs> um, actually are genetic, um, mm-hmm. in their predisposition, they tend to run in the same crowd as seborrheic keratoses. So the lucky people that get the seborrheic keratoses are also the ones that get the, I love it when patients come in and they say, I got my red moles, <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> check out my red moles and make sure those are okay. Uh, the, the very best treatment for those, if people really want them removed, is to treat them with the pulse dye laser. Okay. At which targets red 
um, as the chromophore and the laser. It's a, typically a vascular laser. Um, it's used for vascular anomalies in children. It's used for rosacea. And so for cosmetic purposes, if people are like, you know, I hate these, I want to wear my evening gown, they're all over my chest, you know, the pulse dye laser is really uh, what we tend to do. For those that are thrombosed, sometimes they bleed a little bit. Oftentimes we'll, we'll actually um, like do a little shave biopsy or um, treat them with a little um, hyfrication which is like the little electric needle that we mm-hmm. use, that works well too. Um, freezing those doesn't tend to work as well. Okay. Paul, what else, what other minor skin complaints can we give Fergie here? Do you want to move on to the next, to, to a different patient or should we stick with Fergie here and, and get into some others? I I feel like I'm actually ready to move past Fergie at this point. I'm getting okay. irritated thinking about her and her yacht. So I think we can move on to the next case. <laughs> and her minor skin complaints are yeah. cosmetic. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Which I'm sure are very bothersome to her. So God bless. I'm glad she's feeling better. But maybe we should move on to our next case. Okay. So Eddie, would you tell us about our next our next uh, unlucky patient, or or maybe lucky because they have a fantastic skin turnist that's about to tell us how to treat them. So for the second case, Mr. Ivan Itch is a 65 year old male coming to you for chronic generalized itching. He has a past medical history of obesity, hypertension, type 2 diabetes, chronic kidney disease, and is currently taking metformin, lisinopril, and atorvastatin. He doesn't remember when this itching started, but has been ongoing for years. He says this itching occurs all over his body and seems to get worse during the winter months. What would your initial workup be for this patient, and how would it change with or without a rash? Such a good, such a good patient. We get these itchy patients a lot. So 65-year-old male is what I'm hearing, some medical comorbidities, correct? He's overweight. um, He meets obesity criteria. He's hypertensive. He has type 2 diabetes, and he has chronic kidney disease, okay? He's also on a statin is what I heard, Um, so has medications that can cause skin dryness and certainly skin itching. And it's funny, people don't often remember exactly when things started, but because this has been going on for years, so specifically when it comes to pruritus, greater than six months, we would call chronic pruritus. Um, So that's sort of the cutoff between chronic uh, and acute. The itching occurs all over his body. This is really important. So it's not just one area and worse during the winter months. So if he has no rash, Right. So when we think about pruritus in in dermatology, we think about pruritus with a rash or pruritus without a rash. That's like two totally separate buckets. Okay. So I want you to make that branch point right away. Itch without a rash is lots of things. And honestly, often many things at once. So very multifactorial and a little bit of a lot of things in somebody over the age of 65. So xerosis is one of the biggest things. So xerosis is the fancy word for skin dryness. Mm-hmm. As we age, our if you think about the skin as a brick wall, and the keratinocytes are your bricks, and your free fatty acids, your ceramides, your cholesterols, and all those skin lipids are your mortar, you aren't as efficient at patching your mortar as you get older. Your mm-hmm. skin's biology changes. And dry skin is itchy skin. Um, it's just generally more reactive. So sometimes patients will say to me, well, why is this all happening now? And I, I'll say, well, you've never been 65 before. <laughs> oh, I'm sure they love that. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of a gentler way of saying, you know, well, you know, you're older, right? <laughs> right. Um, and so, 
you know, for everybody, if you're itchy and it's generalized, the answer is almost at a minimum starting to use a ceramide containing moisturizer. And, you know, we talked a little bit in the beginning and I'll say it again, there are like tons of randomized controlled trials in dermatology for a lot of this. So this is expert opinion, but I think it's pretty well accepted expert opinion that, you know, using a ceramide containing moisturizer, there are several of them available over the counter. And I usually recommend that they do it twice a day. I tell the patients don't go out and get the biggest jar for the best price because you might actually hate how this feels on your skin because each of them are slightly different in their sort of cosmesis and their properties. So I tell them to go out and get the travel sizes or get the small ones at first to find the one that they that they don't hate because there are some patients who really don't like that tactile feel of having lotion on their skin. And I tell them you don't need a lot of it. Like if you feel like you're a dust catcher walking around... <laughs> You probably use too much, right? And for those patients who have financial constraints, even regular old white petrolatum, you know, you can get it at the dollar store. You can get it pretty much anywhere. Um, that's better. It does not contain ceramides, but that is better than than nothing. You told us on a previous episode, like if someone has dry skin, you want to make them greasy. Yep. But you got to tell them that might stain their clothes if they're using the white petrolatum right it, it like just mu- it doesn't really stain so much as it just like embeds the little you know like okay. the, the fabric so uh, like you don't need much actually yeah. and what's nice about it is you can rub it between your hands and it mm. almost melts and becomes almost like an oil you can like, yeah. rub it on that way um so that has worked well for a lot of my patients who can't afford you know even like a nine dollar over the counter and and when i was reading about this generalized puritis because I've I've had a bunch of older patients come to me with this. It, I was kind of thinking, like Paul, I don't know if you had the same thought that it, it's almost like there's almost like a sleep hygiene for the for people with dry skin. There's like a, a like a basic hygiene that people should be doing, and then on top of that, usually we're gonna have to add more. But we at least want to make sure they they have this baseline thing. And can you tell us what is like the general just advice we should give to our patients that are complaining of dry skin? You just told us one, make them greasy. Yeah. So, so unscented, um, does not mean fragrance free. So that's Mm -hmm. really important. So, you know, we like really bland soaps and we like as little soap as is necessary to get you clean. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, we like regular old bland bar soaps. There are some really mild, you know, sensitive skin soaps that you can get over the counter. I have really no brand loyalty whatsoever. I have a list Mm -hmm. that I give out in my clinic. Um, And then moisturizer applied, you know, after you pat dry, when your skin is still ever so slightly damp, which seems counterintuitive, and it seems like it would be very sloppy. But in fact, it actually helps you to kind of suck in that moisture so that you can get dressed and you don't feel like a grease bomb. Okay. Generally, for things uh, for very sensitive people, ointments are better than creams because creams have preservatives and stabilizers. In terms of emollient properties, things that you scoop out of a jar and rub on are actually usually more moisturizing than things that you pump out of a bottle because in order to thin it out to make it pumpable, they add alcohols often. Oh, interesting. So that's just one quick and dirty trick you can tell folks, you know, get get the one that you actually unscrew the top, even though it's somehow less convenient, you know, they tend to be more moisturizing. Ointments tend to be more moisturizing than creams, but creams are definitely more elegant in terms of you know, feeling comfortable and, and being able to get dressed and go to work and things like that. 
But let's what talk is, a little well, bit. I was going to just ask, what's oh. are hot showers okay, or do these people these people have to take cold showers? I mean, here's the thing: people are going to do what they're going to do, <laughs> right? So, so um, you can tell someone all day long not to take hot showers, um, and it's really interesting. We don't have time to go into it today, but you know, in in like ancient Chinese medicine and stuff, there's a there's a role for like heat and cold and what it does to the sea fibers and you know, and all that. So hot showers feel amazing when you're in the shower. Like you are getting real relief from your chronic right. arthritis. It is a truly a real escape, but you pay the price in all the, you know, uh, loss of transepidermal water loss is actually the scientific term that they use. I mean, you are desiccated <laughs> when you get okay. out. And so you really do have to, I, I call it with all my my wiser patients, you know, you have to to patch your, you have to like tuck point your mortar here. (laughs) You know, you're at the age where you really need to tuck point your mortar. You really, you know, I'm sorry. And and gentlemen in particular do not like to use lotions and creams and things, but you know, if they want relief, they really do have to give it um, a college try. So, you know, and and, and finding one that they like, that they feel comfortable using, that doesn't make them feel sticky and yucky is half the battle. So starting with the smaller sizes. Yeah, I, I feel like the shower history is often neglected, you know, because I have patients, particularly in the summertime, they're taking three to four cold showers a day. And then they're like, yeah, my skin's real itchy. And then also just to quote, stay fresh. And then the wintertime, because they're freezing all the time, they're taking two to three showers a day. And I think that's a piece of patient history that can sometimes, is, is often very helpful, though, that like you say, it's hard to correct. I guess for if we're still in pruritus without Rashland, like I feel the way this typically goes down, I try to get a great history and find some excuse to, to blame xerosis. And then I'll do sort of a basic lab workup. So mm-hmm. I'll... We'll, we'll look for biliary stasis with the, the liver tests. We'll do thyroid tests because maybe there's some association with xerosis. We'll do like a CBC to make sure there's no erythrocytosis or anything weird like that going on. And then that stuff almost – and then CKD to make sure they're not suddenly acutely uremic. And then if all that stuff comes back normal, which it almost invariably does or at mm-hmm. least not different than it was before, and they're like, yeah, doc, I'm still itchy. Sort of where where do we go from here? Because I feel <laughs> yeah. like I run into this so, a lot. So I think – in somebody 65 years old, you have to think about paritis as the presenting symptom for lymphoma, even in younger patients, really. But certainly, you know, checking an LDH is totally reasonable. And then the best paper that I actually hand out on rounds and lives in the resident room is by uh, uh, Gilyop Sapovich. Um, and we can link to that. It's a New England Journal uh, review article on chronic paritis. And it's just really, really, it's just lined up. So clearly, you know, what workup would be reasonable next? Um, And there are so many tools in the toolbox for the treatment of itch. Actually, that maybe should be an episode too, um, (laughs) because people, they throw antihistamines at everything because that's what we do for itchy stuff, right? We don't like that in our geriatric We don't like that in our geriatric (laughs) patients at all. Um, And, you know, the vast majority of paritis, as we've learned more about C-fibers and itch and and all these different neurotransmitters, it's not histamine mediated. Mm -hmm. So to use antihistamines for the treatment of itch really doesn't make much sense. There's wonderful scientists in our field looking at this, but there's lots of things in the toolbox, including antidepressants, right? Which kind of hit similar receptors in the skin. Opioid antagonists um, work beautifully for certain types of itch. We still use a lot of phototherapy in dermatology, actually. So narrowband UVB or even photochemotherapy with, you know, PUVA can work really well. There's so many great tools. 
any role for like topical steroids or any other, do you use capsaicin? I saw that was something. Mm -hmm. There's the promoxine, which is the, that's the pink stuff, right? That you use for poison ivy. Actually, so that's calamine lotion. Oh, that's different. Yep. That's different. So great question. I try really hard not to use steroids unless I'm treating inflammation of the skin. Okay. Because steroids come with side effects. Mm-hmm. Right, you get thinning of the skin, you get upregulation of you know vascular stretch marks, the, like the whole thing. So I try really hard. If there's no rash, I don't use steroids. I do like menthol-containing creams because C fibers can't carry temperature and itch very well at the same time. I think we talked about this on maybe a prior episode. So that works beautifully. Over the counter, there are some branded menthol with promoxine. Mm -hmm. containing lotions. Promoxine is a neuromodulator that can be applied topically. I believe it used to be prescription only. Don't quote me on this, but it went over the counter several years ago. So that is wonderful. Um, You can look for that ingredient. Capsaicin. Have you guys ever put capsaicin on yourself? Okay. So I had a patient when I was in my internal medicine residency who had small cell lung cancer and had a lot of itch from her chemotherapy. And I prescribed her capsaicin. I was like, this is going to be great. You're going to love... Yeah. She brought it back. She's like, you put it on. You do it. So I did, right? Because this is what we do to understand what our patients are going through. If you don't counsel correctly about what capsaicin feels like, then someone's going to use it once and never again. And they may Uh never tell you. I was so grateful that that patient came back to me. Yeah. Um, You tell them you use gloves when they do it? it, it I mean, it hurts. Yeah. It really hurts. The thing is, you know, that what's the term for when it's fatigable, right? Like, so it hurts initially. And Uh then as you continue to apply it, that burning, you know, goes away. And that's actually how it works. Yeah, it's by depleting, you know, those neurotransmitters, they can't carry that signal. Um, and, And people do get real relief. But you have to counsel people. Okay. Yeah. And then like, yeah, don't rub your eyes or touch don't, your genitals. Yeah, don't go like to the <laughs> restroom. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it. yeah, I washed my hands probably a hundred times in clinic that day because I was like, this is really unreal. And then There's now- contact lens injuries I'm seeing happening. Oh yeah, for sure. And then I actually do a lot of topical compounded neuromodulators. So I do a lot of ketamine, amitriptyline, and lidocaine compounded together, which works beautifully. But like that is something I think you should send to Derm and let them kind of figure it out because there's percentages in body surface area and skin, you know, integrity issues there. The last thing you want to do is have someone high as a kite from their ketamine, (laughs) which has happened. It sounds like for Mr. Ivan, basically we're going to, we counseled him on the hygiene stuff, you know, mindful of the showers. We're going to make sure he's moisturized, uh, tuck it in his tucking, uh, what is it? Tuck point your bricks. Is that what you said? <laughs> tuck point and your, your mortar. Your mortar, your mortar. Sorry. I, yeah. Okay. Just rolls right off the tongue. That's rolls good. right off the tongue. <laughs> and then, and then we were going to, uh, try some there. You gave us some topical stuff to try. You said maybe some antidepressants. Uh, there's some of them out there that can check work. Check his labs. We'll, yeah. We'll check the labs, check which the labs. Paul went through. Yep. And, uh, we're going to link to this Gil Yapsipovich paper, which I did yep. read and I thought it was fantastic it's as so well. Good. And it has all the treatments listed there. You can try, you can read about them and see. Maybe you can multi-purpose something for something else the patient exactly. has. Exactly. Oh, and the statins, which we want. Thank you. I, I was going to ask. Yeah, yeah real the quick, statins, if we go over medications, because yeah. I nodded but did not know that actually. Yep. So can you talk yep. us through some so of the meds the, that are common culprits? The statins for sure um, will will dry out the skin. It actually changes the sebum content. And so, you know, it's changing cholesterol, right? Like that's how it's working in cholesterol as part of your skin. And so that's what we think is happening there. 
Um, it certainly does make people itchier. Opioids, right? Yeah. Um, aspirin for some people makes them itchy. And this is obviously different from hives, right? This is itch without rash. Mm-hmm. But those are probably the those are probably the big ones. Oh, and you know, chemotherapies and immunotherapies. So one of the big, big, big ones is PD1 drugs. PD1 drugs, I think uh, I can link to a paper, but you know, greater than 50% of patients on a PD1 drug for say their melanoma or for their, it's used for so many cancers now, right? Paritis comes with the drug in, in greater than half of the patients. So learning to manage that and oncoderm okay. is really a, a big thing. All right. So next we have Mr. P.A. Ta- Toehead, a 65-year-old male. <laughs> sure. Uh, he has horrible chronic lower extremity edema with hyperpigmentation of the skin over his shins and bilateral circumferential redness with intermittent itching. He's going to the beach soon and requests some antibiotics to help clear up his bilateral cellulitis. We'll get to his feet next. <laughs> okay. So um, he has horrible chronic lower extremity edema with some hyperpigmentation over the shins primarily, is what I'm hearing. He wants to go to the beach. He wants to be bikini ready. Who can blame the man? And <laughs> uh, and so he's he wants some antibiotics to clear up his bilateral cellulitis. Okay, great. So um, first of all, you guys did a beautiful episode on this just a couple weeks ago. Um, bilateral cellulitis is a unicorn, right? It doesn't, it, I'm not going to say I've never seen it. It is uncommon and you guys know that already. So mm-hmm. we won't we won't belabor that. The likelihood that this is bilateral cellulitis is nearly zero. So a couple of things, you know, looking at this gentleman's legs, you already know he has edema, right? And so subtle things though, let's say he didn't have like ripping edema, you know, you check for pitting, you'd look for subtle pitting there. They often have loss of leg hair which is really interesting. I don't know why this happens. I don't know if anyone knows why this happens. <laughs> but folks with very early chronic edema, they lose their leg hair. So the legs look very shiny. And then with time, they'll get that sort of inverted champagne bottle look to their mm-hmm. calves. If you look at them sort of from behind, it um, very much looks like that very narrow ankle area and sort of that bulbous calf. And that's called lipodematosclerosis. And that's actually, you know, um, sclerotic skin changes from uh, the skin being under tension from the edema. What you're seeing on his shins is actually um, generally pigment incontinence, again, just from chronic inflammation and uh, hyperpigmentation of inflammation from that. He's itchy, right? Isn't that what you said? So, you know, what are we going to do for him? You know, if his legs are pink and if he's itchy, you do want to treat that. I do tend to use uh, a topical steroid. I tend to use creams rather than ointments. This is one of those rare areas where I tend to lean towards the cream. And the reason that I tend to use the cream is so that they can actually rub it in and it is less greasy because what you really want them to do beyond anything else is you want to get them into that compression. And it's really hard to put compression over your greasy legs. They're hard enough to get on as it is. So that is where I that is where I do that. A couple of things I teach the residents, you know, how can you tell venous stasis changes of the leg from, say, chronic lymphedema? Venous stasis of the leg tend to have that flash dance leg warmers look to it. Mm-hmm. So usually below the patella and very sharply sort of cut off by the malleoli. Whereas to me, um, lymphedematous changes tend to involve that puffy top of foot. Okay, so that's just mm. a little trick you can take with you. And I think you get him a little topical steroid, usually like a little triumcinolone cream, 
you convince him that August in Washington, D.C. is the best time to wear compression stockings. <laughs> Good luck with that. Good luck with that. Sure. It's hot, right? Um, where I am anyway. But really, that is going to be the best thing for him. Um, the one thing I will say as a dermatologist is you also want to treat any concomitant tidia pettis because we know that the skin immunity uh, in this area when it's uh, when it has this is not normal much higher risk for little um, tears in the skin, and then that does set them up for a cellulitis. Right. So we often are looking to treat tinea pettis, trim the nails up, make sure they've got good footwear, and that they're taking care of their feet. Yeah, which we had talked about as well with the compression. There was the article in 2020, it was a landmark study showing decreased recurrence of cellulitis. Like if he was someone who was having recurrent true cellulitis, uh, compression seems like it can help prevent that. And so- We'll treat his tinea, compress him, and uh, give him some steroid cream. Do you prescribe the 400? Uh, you know, I read this once that 30 grams covers the body once. And uh, so most tubes are like 15, 30, or 45 grams, the smaller tubes. And then the jar, if you prescribe a one pound jar, it's 454 grams. Mm-hmm. Yep. And Triamcinolone 0.1% cream, it's probably my favorite topical steroid because it comes in (laughs) that one pound jar. It does come. Well, actually, so any of them will come in a one pound jar, but the pharmacies tend to stock that one really readily off the shelf. You know, triamcinolone 0.1% cream should not be used indefinitely. Mm -hmm. Again, don't forget that these are medications that you're rubbing on an organ, right? So um, just because they're creams, they're not totally innocuous. So, you know, you might treat this person this is just one thing, one style. You might treat them every day, twice a day for two weeks to get mm-hmm. the, the symptom. I, I chase itch rather than rash with my okay. patients. Right. So as long as he's itchy, he needs it. But the second that's done, that's when you really want to swap in that ceramide containing cream. You know, Got get it. them off of the steroids when they can have a steroid holiday and knowing that they'll need it again at some yeah. point. Um, and if you have a trustworthy patient, they understand instructions, they've got it in their back pocket and they can take it. It sounds like Dr. Watto, you need the little pictures of how much, how many grams cover how much part of the body that every dome resident has in their pocket. So maybe we'll be able to link to that. (laughs) Um, It's definitely in every dome resident's little handbook for sure. Um, it's actually, um, I guess I can say this now because the board's changed. It was, um, classically one of the board's questions. Okay. Calculate the number of grams you would need to cover this body yeah. surface area. But it's uh, just funny, like a patient's like, they have a rash on their entire back and someone gives them a 15 gram tube and it's like, <laughs> good luck making that last for more than like a couple applications. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Maybe yeah. maybe even just like less than one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. We mentioned this guy's feet already. So Mr. Pete A. Towhead, I believe he's got some stuff going on with his feet as well. So Maddie, is there another part to this case? I think there is here. There sure is, Matt. So he also wants to know what you can do for his thickened toenails that seem to give off a flaky crust when he removes his socks. Lovely. (laughs) It started on his big toe as discoloration of the distal and lateral nail edges and then spread to the adjacent toes over the past one to two years. The nails on both big toes have built up underneath the nail plate that flakes off. Yeah. If you haven't suffered sock puff, then you are not a dermatologist. (laughs) I I feel like I should wear a respirator when I take off the socks of a patient like this. Sock puff is real. Um, (laughs) Godspeed to you all. Um, And to to me as an inpatient derm. So, oh, what a topic. Okay, where does it start? Onychomycosis, right? A superficial fungal infection of the nail 
Super, super, super common. So common. Again, almost like going back to the tinea versicolor, totally of really no consequence to someone's health. So I try really hard to put people at ease. People hate this. They do not like how it looks. They want it gone. <laughs> Everyone it, wants to look hot. That's the, is, probably I mean, the theme this, of this I, episode. He, he wants to be bikini <laughs> ready. You can't blame the man. It's sandal season. Um, but I mean, this is a cosmetic problem, essentially, unless he's diabetic and the nails are so thick that they're actually causing, you know, paronychia and ingrown toenails and things. That's different. What can I tell you about this? Okay. So... It is a difficult thing to treat, particularly because there are topical things that you can try. And if you catch it early and people are very diligent, you know, there are some topical treatments. There are like antifungal nail lacquers. Um, You can even, in children, you can actually treat it very easily just by rubbing antifungals on the nail because children's nails are biologically thinner and different. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's worth knowing. But in adults, this is really hard. Um, Vicks Vapor Rub. Vicks uh, Vapor Rub. Um, not to mention a brand name, but uh. yeah, <laughs> the, the the vaporous the vaporous ointment uh, chest rub. Mm-hmm. Um, that is definitely worth trying. You can do dilute vinegar soaks. Some people find some improvement with that. One of the things you can do. Let's say they're not really bothered by the color, but they're bothered by the thickened nature of the nails. You can prescribe urea forty percent ointment or cream, and that can be applied to the nail plate. Um, and actually, that used to be a really old-fashioned way of avulsing a nail completely. If you apply urea 40% to a, a nail plate consistently over several, several weeks, you will actually remove the nail plate completely, um, which is sort of a cool trick that's really old-fashioned. But if someone's just like, this is oh, just wow. so thick, I can't get it in my shoe, I don't like it, that is certainly something that you can do. With the end goal of taking the nail off, I just want to make sure I'm understanding kind, this completely. Kind of up to up to them, right? Um, I tell most of my patients don't want the nail gone. They just want it thin enough that they can <laughs> right. like wear their sandals or get their foot in their dress shoe. So I basically let them have at it. And I say, once it's thin enough um, that you're happy. So does it, does it like flake away as you're doing that or does it melt? It Is kind that a- of... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like alarming happens to the nail. It just over time becomes very thin. And part of the reason I ask is because I, I, when I was reading about this, I think they said, make sure you try to keep the urea away from, uh, I guess maybe this was if you were doing it under occlusion, the mm-hmm. the skin around the nail. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Like it just has to be on the plate itself or you can, can you damage the skin around it? I, I, mean, I didn't think so. But. You, you can, I mean, I guess if you put it under occlusion day after day after day, you could damage okay. the skin, but most of my patients are just- It's not going to like melt their skin off. It's not going to like melt their skin off. No, no, no. But, um, but you know, a lot of, so you kind of have to ask patients like, what bothers you about this? Um, mm-hmm. You know, is it that it's thick? Is it that it's crumbly? Is it painful? I mean, do they have a paronychia around it? Are they diabetic? You know, all these things. What are their other medical problems, right? Hashtag derm is medicine. We can't just be throwing antifungals at people for weeks and weeks on end. These do have side effects. They have lots of medication interactions, um, you know, and and clearing a, a toenail, right, can take 12 months. So we don't treat that long. You know, what's the likelihood that you'll actually clear someone's toenail? And if you look at the studies for this, they talk about mycologic cure rather than like clinically looks normal cure. 
So I talk about that with my patients too. You know, ballpark, just to make it easy to talk about, maybe two thirds of patients will have a mycologic cure. So about maybe a little less than that, will have a nail that looks really normal to them. And then within several years, that same number will get this again. Yeah. Um, So again, it's just that sort of epigenetic, this person lives on earth, this fungus is ubiquitous. I do try to tell them it's not from the swimming pool. You didn't pick this up somewhere. It's, It's really just the combination of you living on earth and this kind of being everywhere. There's some really cool old studies that looked at married couples <laughs> and seeing. Oh, no, I don't know. I don't like this. <laughs> but, um, you know, just because you have it doesn't mean your wife is going to get it. Just because your wife has it doesn't mean you're going to get it. Um, it really is an individual susceptibility. Um, Can I, I have a couple questions, things that are out there. And I wanted to know if you think this is worthwhile. Is it worth sending the crumbles or having them clip part of the nail that looks abnormal and sending it to the lab to make sure that it's a dermatophyte and not something else. Like a yeast um, or candida. Yeah. 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 Yeah, We do that for sure. Okay. Do you know how to clip a toenail so that it doesn't end up in your hair or flying across the room? (laughs) Do you guys know this trick? No, please, please tell us. I used to wear a face shield when I used to clip nails in my (laughs) previous primary care clinic. That's amateur hour. No, no. Let me give you this. Let me give you this. So you take the biohazard bag. Okay. Uh-huh. You poke a hole in the biohazard bag at the bottom. Okay. You put the patient's digit through the hole into the bag. Oh, that's brilliant. The z- zip side, you keep it open. You sure. put your anvil nail clipper and your hand in that side. You clip the nail in the bag. You withdraw the digit from the hole, and then you search the bag for your little piece. That's amazing. Yeah. This is like handling plutonium, it sounds yeah, like. like. I would send <laughs> patients, like, wives out of the room and be like, all right, I'm going to clip his nails now. And then I'd, like, put down my visor and there would just be, like, flying around yeah, the room. And, like, you, and sometimes it's really short and crumbly and you can only get that one little piece and then it flies off and you're, like, crawling around on all fours. <laughs> like, is this it? Maybe this is it? I don't know. Yeah, spare yourself that. That's my gift to you guys. Paul, um, we might have to put a warning in the intro to this episode that there's going to be a lot of gross feet talk. Deeply uh, upsetting. Sock puff, <laughs> nails flying. Yeah, for sure. But um, but the other trick you can do is you can actually send the nail to dermatopathology. They can stain it with a PAS stain. Okay. You won't get culture data that way, but you'll know that there's dermatophyte in the nail plate. Yeah. And then you're off to the races. Because sometimes if people just have like chronic trauma, they're a carpenter and they bang their thumb all the time, then they can have some nails that look funky. Yep, for sure. I, I wanted to ask about if if we are going to treat somebody, like I, I have, let's say I have a 45-year-old guy, he smokes a lot, he's got actually fingernails that look pretty gnarly. Uh, there's no other word for it. And he wanted me to treat him with an azole, is that or, or terbinafine? Is that somebody that like let's say they have no other comorbidities, liver functions fine? Is it worth just giving like giving it a try? And do, and do you check LFTs like at the beginning and then like midway through treatment or at the end of treatment? Yeah. So um, with the um, with the azoles, of course, we do check LFTs pretty frequently. With uh, terbinafine, I think you know it tends to be a little bit safer. I still get baseline LFTs on everybody if I'm going with either of those two options. I also want to know how much somebody drinks, Mm -hmm. right? Because 
All of this is processed through the liver. I tell them it's like a computer, like you can overclock your computer, try to you know run some fancy program or whatever. You can overclock your liver trying to enjoy your beers while you're taking this medication. A lot of my patients, when I have a frank conversation with them about that, they actually don't really want to treat it. <laughs> They're like, yeah. nope, you know what? I really like to have three or four beers and go fishing and like, really, let's try some of these topical things. Ultimately, again, I'll say it again, it's cosmetic. So, and they probably will recontract it. Very few randomized controlled or even controlled studies on how to treat this, but there is good data out there, and I'll send you guys some papers, that you don't have to give the medication daily. We used to give the medication daily. Now you can do what's called pulse therapy because the antifungal is carried in the nail plate for several weeks. Mm-hmm. And so if you pulse it week by week, you can actually sustain treatment longer. The right amount of medicine is the least amount that you need. In theory, you'll have fewer medication interactions, easier on the liver, and people still get clearance that way. There's lots yeah. of really interesting stuff out there. People are using like CO2 lasers to like make little microscopic columns in the nail and then using that for drug delivery. So when you hear about laser treatment for nails, that is coming. The data for using laser on nails right now for nail fungus is not that good. Every once in a while, I have patients tell me they got lasered for their nail fungus. It's just not that good as it stands right now. Um, but more treatments are coming. And I do, the holy grail would be something topical, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know there's a, a fancy Azol topical that's pretty expensive. And I think you have to use it for like 52 weeks. Like I, I think the topicals, at best, if they're going to work, you got to use them for like 48, 52 weeks, something like that. And that's and for the, mycologic cure. For so mycologic I tell cure. people, you know, mycologic yeah. cure in these studies was that they then took the clipping, cultured the nail. Uh-huh. But that does not mean that the nail looked normal. Okay, got it. So, so it's, it's harder to make the nail thinner look and normal. Less flaky, but it, uh-huh. it may still be discolored. It might still have, oh. you know, textural sort of change to it. That's um, that's interesting because mm-hmm. I, I found some patients tell me, I don't know about you, Paul, but some patients tell me they used some topical agent for a couple months and they felt the nail looked better. So they were happy with that and that's all they wanted. But I doubt they had a mycologic cure from that. For sure, it can look better. And and if you catch them early, like oftentimes this will start as just a little thickening and discoloration of like a lateral nail fold, for example. I see this in runners a lot. Sure. You know, because there's sort of chronic trauma there and they're sweaty and... You know, certainly you can use, there's a branded one. I don't endorse it necessarily, but it's just, you know, one that's easy to remember. It's called pen lac, like mm-hmm. lacquer. And you paint it on every day. And then on the seventh day, you wipe it off. And then mm-hmm. you paint it on every day. And certainly I've had patients tell me that that does all that they needed it to do. You know, yeah. is it gone forever? Like, are they cured? No. But are they able to comfortably run and the appearance is acceptable to them to wear sandals? Um, for sure, that will work. Yeah. And for the audience, uh, before we get some angry emails, I I know that this is a bothersome condition to people. I don't mean to sound callous that people are bothered by the appearance of their toenails. I, I understand. It's just talking about feet. It's kind of funny, but uh, no, people, it is, it is very, it is, it is, people are very bothered by this. Yeah. Um, yeah but I also, sure. the one thing I will say is that taking away a, a real conversation of risk benefits and side effects, because the last thing we want to do for anybody is hurt them. Yes. Right. 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 I mean, first do no harm. Um, I'm not saying I won't treat somebody with systemics. I'm just saying it's a conversation. 
Yeah, it's um, few patients have taken me up on it once we actually get into the conversation, risk benefits, the risk of recurrence, I think is what gets a lot of people are like, mm-hmm. ah, forget it. I'm not going to risk my liver for something that's going to come back anyway. Right. I think you in the discussion like, well, we'll need to deliver function tests just because this can be hard on the liver. People are like, actually, you know what? It's probably not that important <laughs> to me. Like if it's not going to... <laughs> well, and the urea trick is great because oftentimes yeah. it's just that they want something thin and not so flaky and they want to be able to, like women want to be able to put nail polish on it and have it look cute, Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so urea will, will definitely achieve that. Yeah. All right. Well, Paul, we've learned a lot tonight, and I think it's time uh, for take-home points, unless you have any other any other burning questions. Ah, burning. No, I, I do not. <laughs> okay. Helena, any, like, what, are, uh, what are some of your favorite take-home points or things you really don't want people to remember uh, that you really want people to remember that we talked about tonight? Um. I think that feeling confident about being able to use that stretch test uh, to fluff yeah. out the, the furfuricious scale and to have the term furfuricious scale in your life will bring you great <laughs> joy. Um, it's just fun to say. Um, you know, I think all these tricks really to give you confidence that you're diagnosing things appropriately, that you know what you're looking at, uh, that you know how to counsel patients. Remember that your friendly local board certified dermatologist is happy to partner with you. For sure, um, if you feel like you're out of your league or if you feel like the patient you know, wants a, a deeper dive, we're always happy to, to see your patients um, and make sure they get good sound information. And you know, dermatology is medicine, and we are happy to, to be participating in everything that we do on the curbsiders and, and internal medicine and beyond. And we will, uh, last thing, we'll give you a chance to plug any of your favorite derm organizations or derm societies. Oh, I mean, every single time it's the same. And I uh, conflict of interest here, I'm on the board of directors, but the, the Society of Dermatology Hospitalists is the most amazing group of people. Not because I'm there. I mean, just I have had, and I mean, I'm not saying that about myself. I'm saying- It's definitely these, partly because you're th- there. <laughs> these are the best mentors. Um, we are really um, very dedicated to getting dermatologists into the hospital setting, getting dermatologists interested and involved um, and busy with you guys in complex medical dermatology, a pipeline for mentorship, amazing research, smartest people I've ever worked with. And I just can't say enough good things about the folks there. So please check out their website. Okay. It's such a gift to have access to inpatient dermatologists. Like it's, it's like I said, it's, it's such a nerve wracking thing to have to deal with as an internist. So to have that sort of expertise really available to you is, is just magical. So that's fantastic. I mean, I think it's the best job in the world. So I, I you know, <laughs> that, especially that organization, and we are the lucky ones for sure. We love what we do. So come check us out. All right. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Maddie, Eddie, any takers? No? Yummy. (laughs) You guys have heard the show, right? (laughs) Never make it to the end. Uh, (laughs) Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. And while you're there, sign up to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. And we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producers for this episode, Eddie and Maddie, who are with us. Also, a special thanks to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Mad Dog Morgan on Instagram, MJ Allen and Jeff Carter are on the transcription team, Tima Karganov is on the website, and Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. 
I also wanted to remind you that this and most of our episodes are available for free CME credit through our partnership with VCU Health, continuing education at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. So finally, Paul, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I'm Maddie Mad Dog Morgan. I'm Edison Jang. Excellent. Strong work, both of you. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing the theme music you are doubtless hearing behind our sweet voices. We should also thank the amazing Claire Morgan of Not Early for editing our audio. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.